Hello and welcome to the EMS Nation podcast. I'm your host, Faison Arshad. Thank you so much for joining us today. We have a very special treat for you. The next several episodes are actually recorded live from the World Trauma Symposium at the previous EMS World Expo in Las Vegas. The World Trauma Symposium is hosted by NAMT and helps bring some of the leading experts in trauma care as well as pre-hospital and disaster management to the world stage of EMS World Expo and bring that content via NAMT to folks who are interested in improving their practice. Episode 63 is with Dr. Andy Pollack, who is an orthopedic surgeon, though nevertheless board certified in EMS and disaster preparedness, the chairman of orthopedics for the University of Maryland. He really brings an exquisite attention to the nuances of pre-hospital EMS care. He also serves as the current medical director for Baltimore County Fire Department and is the editor who has done a tremendous job in corralling a world-class set of experts for PHTLS version 9, which is sure to hit NAEMT at the debut at the next EMS World Expo in 2018. I am confident that this will generate a fair bit of attention on Twitter as well as social media, the latest changes in trauma care, ATLS 10th edition, as well as the impact on pre-hospital care. So listen through, let's use this to generate a fantastic conversation and ultimately lead to improved patient outcomes. Thank you very much. Um, It's a pleasure to be here. Uh, these are my conflicts. I'm the, also the editor of the AAOS Orange Book series, and I get royalties on this external fixer, which I designed, but I don't think that has much to do with, with this particular topic. Uh, uh, I'm from Maryland. Uh, as, uh, as people have heard, the, the, the home of the golden hour. Uh, I heard uh, a shot at it this morning. We, we really do understand that it's not a full hour that you have. It's about five minutes sometimes, uh, depending on where you shot. Uh, but uh, I thought I'd uh, respond. Uh, the um, uh, I, I, a couple couple comments about me before I go on. The uh, um, I think this is the, the might be the, the wrong talk that was loaded up, but uh, we'll see how how it goes. The um, uh, I uh, am new to this whole topic. I'm new to this group. I have uh, been involved in uh, uh, pre-hospital care, out-of-hospital care since about 1980. Uh, as, uh, as a provider and as the medical director of the Baltimore County Fire Department. Uh, I really appreciate coming to, the, uh, to, a, to a group like this to give a talk. It's always, uh, it's one thing to give a, a talk on a rather dry subject like what's new in ATLS. It's the second thing to have to follow the dog talk. Uh, but uh, I, 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 in listening to all the other talks this morning, I don't think there's anything I would have wanted to follow. This is a great, great symposium, and I thank you for inviting me. The, uh, 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 to go over the areas of change for PHTLS that reflect on what's happening in ATLS, uh, they come in, in several areas. Uh, the initial assessment and resuscitation phase is a little bit different. We start to talk about uh, tranexamic acid and its use. Uh, we talk about judicious fluid administration, strive for single 18-gauge IV access as opposed to our traditional uh, uh, two large bore catheters, as big as you can get them, if you can get an 8-gauge IV in. Uh, and you can find somebody that makes something that big, go for it. We're sort of tapering down from that. There's an alternative approach to needle thoracostomy. 
we'll talk a little bit about head trauma and the introduction of the new Glasgow Coma Score, the updated guidelines regarding hyperventilation. Uh, I'll talk a little bit today about the language in spinal trauma and sp uh, spinal motion restriction versus spinal immobilization, probably one of the simplest concepts in uh, uh, in, in, in all of medical care, yet probably uh, one of the most controversial uh, today for, for some un unknown reason why everybody's so interested in it. Uh, we'll talk about uh, um, uh, uh, fluid resuscitation in burns and fluid resuscitation in children a little bit. So first, to start with tranexamic acid, does it increase survival after trauma? And uh, the early data uh, uh, shows us that the answer is probably yes. Well, what is tranexamic acid? It's an inexpensive uh, anti-fibrinolytic fibrinolytic, uh, agent. It reversibly blocks lysine receptor sites on plasminogen, which prevents plasmin from degrading into fibrin and thus preserves the fibrin matrix structure. So it doesn't cause blood to clot. What it does is it prevents clots that form naturally from breaking down. So there's a continuous steady state of clots forming and clots breaking down, and clots breaking down tends to be a problem in patients who are uh, uh, losing their clotting factors and losing their normal regulatory mechanisms. And if you add tranexamic acid to the equation, it preserves the clots that have, that, that have formed and prevents them from breaking down. Thus, it, it reduces the need for transfusion, and it's been demonstrated in study after study in elective surgical procedures over many, many years now to clearly reduce the need for transfusion in elective hip and knee replacement. What it also does in elective hip and knee replacement is does nothing to increase the risk of deep venous thrombosis and uh, pulmonary embolism. So that's what we worry about in these patients, right, is it's going to cause a clotting problem by preventing the breakdown of the clots. And that's absolutely no evidence in hip and knee replacement that that's true. There's still a contraindication in patients with prior PE or DVT to using it. Uh, but that's really uh, based on, on, on very uh, weak data, and the truth is that we still use it in a lot of those patients when the risk of bleeding outweighs the risk of additional clot. So that's what tranexamic acid is, lengthy, lengthy experience with it in the elective setting. And then in 2010, which isn't exactly yesterday, uh, the CRASH-2 study was published, which was a randomized uh, a clinical trial, double-blind, placebo-controlled, very well done of adult trauma patients with or at risk of significant bleeding. So this is a big study, 20,000 patients, 274 centers, 40 countries, and the all-cause mortality was significantly reduced in the patients who received tranexamic acid early versus those in the placebo group with relatively strong confidence intervals, although the overall confidence intervals you see sort of start to approach one, which makes us a little bit worried uh, about the effect, but the p-values are significant. There, there, there are clearly uh, some, some different groups, though, that did well and that didn't, and one of the, uh, the concerning effects of this was the length of time from treatment, uh, from injury to treatment. And what you see is that this is the odds ratio uh, of, uh, 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 of 1.0. This, this suggests that, that, that there, if you're below here with your odds ratio, it suggests that there's a, a clear advantage to the use of tranexamic acid. And up here, if you get your tranexamic acid late, there's a risk of increased mortality in that group. And the causes of that are unclear at this point, but what it, this, this data showed was that if you get your tranexamic acid in less than three hours from the time of injury, you have a beneficial effect from the, uh, from the drug. And that's very, very important. And that led to the question of, well, should we be using tranexamic acid in the pre-hospital setting? So it appears that TXA may be beneficial, probably is beneficial, 
uh, in the first uh, uh, three hours after injury, one gram uh, slow IV over the first 10 minutes. And it's very, very important that there be good communication with the receiving hospital that that first gram was given because a second dose needs to follow, and that's typically a gram over an hour afterwards. The role for late administration, the data is not quite as clear, uh, but it, it looks like there's some caution in the use of it later than three hours after injury. Uh, uh, but what hasn't been studied yet and, and what's clearly unknown is the role for topical administration. In patients, clearly in the, again, in the orthopedic setting, one that I'm very familiar with, topical administration of TXA works extremely well. And adding topical administration uh, to um, uh, IV administration is very beneficial. There are things that we can start to look at in the future. For example, in a, a wilderness-type setting where the use of a tourniquet uh, for a very prolonged period of time may be detrimental, maybe for bleeding that's not arterial, that's venous over particularly large uh, wound areas, TXA may be beneficial. Uh, topical TXA in the field may be less uh, concerning than IV TXA. All to follow, obviously, uh, follow local protocols, uh, and then pivotal trials are underway to better understand the role of TXA in the field and find out whether it works in that setting or not. The, uh, the next uh, uh, issue with regard to initial, uh, initial assessment and resuscitation looks at aggressive resuscitation uh, before, uh, the, the question of whether aggressive resuscitation before bleeding control increases mortality. So uh, clearly the reflex two-liter administration of crystalloid when patients arrive at the hospital is now gone, and the recommendation is for smaller 250 cc boluses up to four times, checking the blood pressure after each one, titrated to a systolic blood pressure of 70 in patients without significant intracranial injury. Uh, uh, systolic, titrated to a systolic of 90 in patients with severe traumatic brain injury. So the controlled fluid resuscitation, where did this come from? This is a study in the, the Journal of Trauma from 2015. Uh, this was from the uh, Resuscitation Outcomes Consortium. Uh, looked at 19 EMS systems, and they looked at, at controlled resuscitation versus standard resuscitation. And the controlled resuscitation group got 250 cc boluses titrated to a systolic blood pressure of 70 versus uh, the standard resuscitation group, which got 2 liters plus to a systolic blood pressure of 110. Sort of our, our, our antiquated use of, of, of standard resuscitation. They looked at 24-hour mortality and blunt trauma and found 3% in the controlled resuscitation group versus 18% in the, uh, the, the standard resuscitation group with an odds ratio of 0.17, but fairly wide confidence intervals, but again, not, not, not covering one, which suggested that there is very, very substantial benefit to controlled resuscitation in blunt trauma patients uh, 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 early on, which, lead, which will lead to changes in the way that we make recommendations uh, with regard to uh, pre-hospital use of crystalloid resuscitation. Uh, interestingly, there's no, no difference in penetrating trauma. That if you're bleeding out from penetrating trauma, you probably have big holes rather than small holes, uh, and uh, uh, getting fluid in is, uh, is very important. Um, and again, time to definitive care is very important. A large phase three trial is indicated to definitively demonstrate safety and efficacy. So what else does that change with regard to the way that we think about pre-hospital care? Well, again, we've thought for years that the idea of two large bore IVs is reflex in trauma. Two very large bore IVs must be better than two just large bore IVs. And if you're going to pour in a lot of fluid very, very quickly, then two big 12-gauge or 10-gauge or 8-gauge or whatever you can find IVs in the periphery makes a lot of sense. But if your goal is 250cc boluses and rapid transport, what makes more sense is getting something in that's very, very reliable. 
and very, very reliable is an 18-gauge catheter, not a 12-gauge or a 14-gauge, even when the veins look very, very big. Uh, not, not that there's anything wrong with the larger line, just that your risk of missing tends to be higher, and they're painful. They hurt, they hurt going in. So strive to achieve one 18-gauge IV catheter for access in the field in the context of decreased uh, crystalloid resuscitation goals. There's an advantage, to, uh, uh, the advantage to the larger is offset by the decreased success rate. And the choice of an alternate site for access, if the 18 gauge uh, fails, should be based on provider scope, experience, and skill. But the IO access is very quick, very reliable, very reproducible, and, and going to that quickly makes a lot of sense, particularly in the field. Getting a second line in somebody during transport uh, makes infinite sense. If you've already got one in place, the idea that we're going to need a second one at some point is very valid. But the initial, fi uh, the initial uh, reflex should be away from two very large IVs to one single 18 to start. The next topic is tension pneumothorax. So we've uh, thought a lot about tension pneumothorax over the years, and it's sort of been, again, a reflex, a reflex knee-jerk reaction uh, to put uh, a, um, uh, a large catheter at the second intercostal space in the midclavicular line. Uh, and that seems to have worked well, except when it doesn't work well. Uh, and uh, the uh, uh, literature is beginning to show that needle decompression is not always successful given current techniques. So we find kinking of the catheter and variable thickness of the chest wall uh, have, tend to contribute to this. So I don't know if, if any of you have noticed this throughout the United States, but some of our patients in the Baltimore area tend to be getting a little bit larger by the minute. Some of them seem to be getting larger by the second, uh, and the length of the 14-gauge catheter isn't always enough to get us down to where the, the air is in the chest. Um, the, uh, so uh, uh, studies have, have looked at the distance between the skin and the lung and found that the second interspace at the mid-clavicular uh, line uh, isn't uh, always the area where the skin is closest to the lung. Um, uh, and uh, recommendations are to move that from the second interspace, the mid-axillary line, to the fifth interspace at the, uh, uh, at the anterior axillary line, the from the second interspace at the mid-clavicular to the fifth interspace at the anterior axillary. And finger thoracostomy is valuable uh, uh, as an alternative approach when you can't get down far enough, fast enough, but most people in the pre-hospital environment aren't ready to perform needle thoracostomy, it's not within, or finger uh, thoracostomy, it's not within scope of practice. So this is the data. This comes from a, a paper that was uh, published by the Mayo Group uh, in Injury in 2016, just last year, looking at chest wall thickness uh, and uh, also a systematic review of meta-analysis of the literature, and they found fewer failure rates with the anterior axillary line. There's a, uh, uh, that was a statistically significant finding, and there's an also a significantly lower chest wall thickness at the anterior axillary line. That's spot C on the drawing. Uh, at the nipple line uh, versus spot A. So this is actually uh, a little bit safer, uh, a little bit more reliable, um, uh, and uh, uh, more effective. Uh, the problem is, again, we're using the nipple line as the, uh, uh, the guide for where the, uh, the fifth, uh, fourth to fifth intercostal space is. If you get down a little bit lower, uh, you could potentially stick uh, a, um, uh, uh, an angiocath into the needle or the spleen. Uh, that can be treated if that happens, but again, uh, uh, the, the nipple line should be where the nipples are supposed to be and not where they move to, depending on uh, anatomical changes uh, that occur. So please keep that in mind uh, uh, as uh, you're performing this. Uh, what's new in head trauma? 
uh, there's a new GCS introduced. Uh, and that sounds scary for those of us who grew up with a GCS that hadn't changed since the 70s. But it's not that scary. There's not that much of a change to it. Uh, it's uh, clearly available online. There's actually, a, if you go to uh, GlasgowComaScale.org, they have their own website with an entire video. Uh, that helps show you how to uh, how to obtain a Glasgow Coma Score and what the changes are. And it's actually very very well done. Uh, they have a Do It This Way aid that's down downloadable that can, you can use to help uh, uh, teaching folks. Uh, it uh, describes a standardized stimulation and reporting process. The eye and verbal scores are changed. The pain uh, is replaced by pressure. Uh, the idea of making the patient hurt is uh, not necessarily any more effective than applying gentle pressure in these areas. Uh, the words incomprehensible sounds and inappropriate words were deleted. I, I think that was a request uh, from the orthopedic surgeons groups to uh, 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 avoid confusing patients who had head injury with the orthopedic residents uh, at times. Um, but the, uh, and then the motor scale was changed uh, uh, slightly to uh, change to normal or abnormal flexion versus withdraws to pain or flexor, flexor posturing. So here's uh, the old GCS with the changes in place. We took out, they took out inappropriate word uh, from words and incomprehensible versus sounds to just words and sounds. And instead of the two uh, sort of flexion responses where one withdraws to pain and one is a, a sustained flexion response, there's normal flexion and abnormal flexion. Uh, so very slight changes, but the, the maximum score is still set at 15, and the minimum score is still set at 3. The, uh, uh, the next big change is the, the, the change that relates to prolonged hyperventilation, which is no longer recommended. And I think from, from our standpoint, and looking at the old edition of PHTLS, was not recommended in the last edition still. Uh, but this sort of uh, uh, codifies that and brings it into uh, alignment. Uh, how many people here are still hyperventilating patients down to a PACO2 of 25 in the field or 30, 25 to 30? Any hands? No, so this is good. The, 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 so this is old, but the, the, the target PACO2 for patients, for a particular set of patients who are actively herniating in front of you could be considered at 30 to 35. Hyperventilating to get their, their PACO2 down to 30 to 35 could be considered. And that's a very, very select group of patients. It's patients who start out with a GCS of eight and drop by two points or more while you're watching them, or patients who, who blow a pupil while you're watching them. Those are people who appear to be actively herniating. The idea of dropping pressure a little bit in a con very controlled fashion may have some specific value. But dropping uh, pressures down to a PACO2 of 25 or less is very, very effective in decreasing cerebral blood flow and very, very uh, uh, minimally effective in decreasing intracranial pressure, and it's not something that we're doing in the hospital anymore. Uh, more important is preventing these patients from ever getting hypotensive and preventing these patients from ever becoming hypoxemic. That's very important. Uh, I still hear people uh, wanting to avoid giving 100% oxygen to these patients because of concern uh, about uh, 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 free radicals, et cetera, and potential secondary injury from oxygen. There's no good evidence that short-term use of high, uh, of, of high concentrations of oxygens in these patients is at all detrimental, and there's very, very good use that short-term hypoxia is extremely detrimental. So if you're going to err, please err on the side of extra oxygen, not on the side of decreased oxygen. All right, spinal immobilization, spinal motion restriction. I haven't, nobody's thrown an egg at me yet for titling the slide spinal immobilization. So the term spinal, spinal uh, uh, motion restriction is introduced in the hospital setting for trauma, and spinal immobilization is eliminated in ATLS. 
So ATLS is different than PHTLS. ATLS occurs in the hospital. It's in hospital care. In 2017, there's no role whatsoever for the use of a backboard inpatient for a patient who's in the hospital. We should be able to move patients around very safely. We're not moving them from the ground back up to the, to the stretcher. Hopefully, they don't go to the ground at any point. Um, we're not moving them from the inside of a car to, a, to an operating room table. There's no use for that stuff. We have very good sliding boards and very good technology for moving patients around, and we have very highly trained personnel around all the time. But we always have a lot of very highly trained uh, personnel. And don't, don't, please, again, don't throw eggs at me for, the, for this comment. I grew up in a volunteer system as a volunteer firefighter paramedic. But I don't have volunteer firefighters who've trained once on this in the past year as a, as a key member of a team that's moving a patient uh, when I'm in the hospital. I have people who do this all day, every day. So when I see patients with severe spinal injury, I worry a lot about moving them very, very carefully in a very controlled environment. It's safer in a hospital than it is outside of a hospital. And outside of a ho inside of a hospital, I can tell you that after 23 years of doing this, I have seen patients who have come in with intact neurologic function or, or, or only slightly impaired neurologic function and have lost it at some point, that lost that function at some point during the hospitalization. It happens. There's a risk that without moving patients carefully, you can cause secondary spinal injury. That's devastating and something you never want to live through or never have to live with and certainly something we never want our patients to have to live with. So the, uh, the, the, the debate about eliminating the term and eliminating the concept of immobilization is, is slightly separate from all of those concepts, but, but what we want to keep in mind throughout all of this is that people with severe unstable spinal injuries are, are, are at risk, and we need to pay attention to that throughout. There are certain tenets that are well accepted. Formal board and collar immobilization is unnecessary and potentially detrimental for patients without evidence of spinal injury and with a reliable neurologic exam. There's no debate about that. I think that at this point in time, the idea of boarding and collaring everybody we encounter in the field, I mean, I came from the days when we boarded and collared people who were standing up and watched the accident happen. The, uh, uh, that, that, that has to go away. It should never come back. But there's, a, th th there's always a risk that a pendulum can go too far and we'll need to come back. So here's an example of a patient that, 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 that we see, and this is not something that we see atypically. So this is a, a, a guy who had uh, a, um, a GCS of about 10 at the scene, has uh, bilateral severe lower extremity injuries. Here you see with bilateral external fixers in place. Uh, the, uh, he had a, 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 a splenic and a hepatic injury, you see from the, uh, the, from the bandage on his belly that he had a laparotomy. Uh, and this is the CT scan of his lumbar spine. He's got injuries you can see here uh, at L3 and T12. Uh, and if you look at the injury at L3 on cross-sectional CT scan, so for those who, who, who aren't uh, orthopedic surgeons or spine surgeons, I think you can still sort of see what's going on here. This is the canal. This is where the, the thecal sac sits, where the nerve roots sit. This is L3. Certainly seen this at L1 and L2 and T12 as well. And this is bone sitting in there. There's no room left for the spinal cord, yet this guy had neurologic function. And we see that occasionally. Why? Because he's who knows why? Because the, the human body is amazing in terms of what can be preserved at times. But here he's probably decompressed a little bit posteriorly, but I can assure you 
that once we see something like this in the hospital, our level of anxiety goes way up because we know we've got somebody who's got the potential for salvaging neurologic function. So he goes to the operating room, gets an anterior decompression. Uh, you can see the canal is much more open than it was. He gets a, a, a fusion uh, with actually with a minimally invasive technique from the posterior side. And this guy regained neurologic function, had normal neurologic function. So if you take a patient like that and act in any way, shape, or form in a, in a cavalier way in terms of the way that you move them, you can potentially cause devastating harm. And we have to keep that in mind as we develop these new protocols. But the, for the patient who's awake and alert and can tell you what's going on, that simply doesn't happen. Those patients, are, uh, I think, are still safe. Um, so what's new in pediatrics? Uh, the use of don't be a dope mnemonic to identify causes of deterioration in intubated patients uh, is new. Uh, importantly, there's no change in the site for needle decompression in children. It's still a second intercostal space at the midclavicular line. Uh, and then fluid resuscitation of 20 cc per kilo boluses followed by one or two additional boluses. The use of the mnemonic don't be a dope uh, for uh, uh, identifying causes of deterioration in intubated patients. Uh, dope is uh, dislodgement, obstruction, pneumothorax, and equipment failure. So again, thinking about uh, uh, causes of problems with mechanical ventilation in these patients. Uh, damage control resuscitation in children represents a move toward limiting crystalloid resuscitation just as it does in, in adults. Uh, uh, and those are the two major changes. What about geriatric trauma? Uh, the pre-existing, the, 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 I think one of the things we asked to, to think about in this talk, what are the pre-existing conditions that impact morbidity and mortality in this population? Certainly geriatric patients uh, as a whole uh, are at risk for higher morbidity and mortality after the same type of trauma as younger patients. That's not rocket science to figure out. Uh, but certainly we know that the geriatric patients and who present with cirrhosis, with coagulopathy, with COPD, uh, with ischemic heart disease or with diabetes are at much uh, increased risk. And there, there's increased morbidity and mortality from pelvic fractures that seems to be independent of age as well, that just the fact of having a pelvic fracture and or a hip fracture seems to dramatically increase the risk uh, in this patient population. Thermal injuries, uh, uh, big changes, uh, the, uh, the standard uh, Parkland formula of four cc's per kilo, for, uh, per, kilo for, per percent burn, uh, which uh, uh, we all grew up with and, and hadn't changed again for 20 or 30 years, needed to change just because nothing can stay the same for 20 or 30 years. The, um, uh, no, the, uh, uh, the fluid resuscitation uh, numbers uh, are now at two cc's per kilo per percent burn. Uh, we try to avoid boluses in this patient population and titrate fluids to, to urine output. That's where the new data has come from. Studies looking at titrating fluid uh, uh, requirements have demonstrated that four cc's per kilo is probably a little bit higher than is needed. Uh, three cc's per kilo for children uh, is the, uh, uh, the, um, the compromise number. So those are the changes. Thank you very much. Thank you guys so much for tuning in and for your support of the EMS Nation podcast. We very much appreciate you listening in and making the conscious decision to upgrade your skill set and deliver the highest quality care to your patients. We also value your feedback and would love for you guys to leave a review on iTunes so that we can continue to share this podcast with all the pre-hospital colleagues on this planet. And let people know, regardless of what your favorite listening style is, we are available on iTunes, the Android platform, and we also recently uh, joined Spotify. 
So please tune in to the next episode of EMS Nation. Here is a salutation from the pre-hospital trauma committee of the National Association of EMTs. I'm Andy Pollack, medical editor for PHTLS 9th edition. My full-time day job as chairman of orthopedics at the University of Maryland. But I'm also the medical director for the Baltimore County Fire Department and a special deputy U.S. Marshal. I can tell you that we are clearly looking forward to the upcoming publication of the ninth edition of the PHTLS textbook. Our authors have been hard at work editing the prior version and adding new content to ensure that we have thorough coverage of all the topics that are important to pre-hospital care providers at all levels and that we've clearly established the evidentiary basis for the statements made and the conclusions drawn. We'll be rolling out the new edition at the World Trauma Symposium in Nashville this coming October, and we hope you can be there for this exciting event. My name is uh, Jesse Bidlow. I'm an anesthesiologist and uh, EMS physician from Switzerland. I'm in charge for the airway chapter of uh, an edition of PHTLS. Actually, I think it's very important because there has, has been a lot coming out in the last years about airway management, and not only in advanced airway stuff, but we have come to recognize the importance of basic airway management. So we have a lot in store, not only for uh, big-time ALS providers, but for each and every EMT on the street. So I'm very, very excited about this ninth edition we're going to, to present in Nashville. I'm Alex Eastman. I'm the medical director of PHTLS, and uh, it is a real pleasure to follow in the footsteps of some giants and friends who have filled this role before me. The theme for the 2018 World Trauma Symposium is New Threats, New Solutions. And at a time when the world seems a bit uncertain, when EMS providers are being asked not only to face novel threats, but to respond to them, uh, we felt like it was our responsibility to bring a conference together that helps not only introduce the ninth edition of the PHTLS program, but brings you, the EMS provider at all levels, a better ability to respond to the novel threats that are out there. So I hope that we will see you in Nashville. We'll promise you unparalleled program that uh, I think you'll enjoy. So with that, um, I'd say thank you for listening, and we'll look forward to seeing you in Nashville. This is the Pre-Hospital Trauma Committee wishing everyone a safe tour.